You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. We're going to be in 1 Peter this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles under the seats, uh, page 1016 uh, is where you can find um, today's text. One of the things, we're going to get right into this um, in Peter's words this morning, but one of the things that unites all of humanity is how short our lives are. So relatively speaking, people have longer and, and shorter lives, but ultimately, on the grand scale, uh, as the psalmist says, it's only 70 or 80 years and soon gone. Or as the Apostle James says, uh, a mist or a vapor. Uh, as people, as, as you and I realize that our lives are short, we sometimes start to develop our own proverbs. Uh, we come up with little sayings to give perspective uh, and to set priorities to cope with that reality that at the end of the day, we really just don't have that much time. So a, a question for you this morning, how would you, if you were making your own proverb, your own saying, how would you complete this thought? Life is short, dot, dot, dot. Life is short, and then you can fill in the blank however you want. How would you make a, a proverb like that for yourself? Here's a couple of these proverbs quickly accessible by Google scholarship. So real deep dive this week, you just search this in Google. A couple that come up. Life is short, so let's go live it. That's a Jason Aldean uh, song. He was just playing down in the York County Fair, or the York, the York Fair uh, this week. Life is short, so live it loud. I don't really even know what that means. Uh, maybe yell more be louder in life. Definitely not a librarian's proverb. Life is short, so do what you want. It's Anita Baker. Or a slight variation of that. Life is too short to live someone else's dream. That's Hugh Hefner. Means something else when you find out who said it, I suppose. Life is short, I want to live it well. That's Switchfoot. And better, but doesn't really tell us what living well exactly means. The other cultural phenomenon, which is basically the, the same thing, uh, are bucket lists. Things that we want to do before, so to speak, we kick the bucket. Uh, places we want to visit, experiences we want to have, etc. Bottom line, the most typical conclusion that people reach when thinking about how short our lives are is some variation of, life is short, so use it for yourself. Do what you want to do, experience what you want to experience, go after your deepest longings, your deepest desires. And embedded in that is a kernel of God's truth. Our longing for fulfillment is evidence of, of the design of God. It's evidence that we bear the image of God. We were created for satisfaction and for significance. But our pursuit of that and how we go after that satisfaction and that significance is blurred behind these layers of corrupted desires and misplaced passions. And so we're always wanting to ask ourselves, how are we actually supposed to respond to the short lives that we have? First Peter is a letter written to Christians in a few different cities of what is now modern-day Turkey. And the Apostle Peter here addresses these Christians, we read at the very beginning of the letter, he addresses them as exiles. In other words, their identities have been so radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that they are no longer at home, even in their own city, even in their own culture. And as Christians in the West, 
in the 21st century, we have an increasing understanding and appreciation of what that feels like. So the question for us is, how do we faithfully follow Jesus when our culture does not encourage that, is not propping us up or supporting us in that pursuit? What we read, if we were going to read the whole letter of 1 Peter this morning, we're not, but what we read in Peter's letter is that many of the answers are counterintuitive. Much of what Peter says is the exact opposite of how we would naturally respond. He's going to say, don't despair, even though you're exiles, even though you're more on the margins of society, don't despair, have hope. He's going to say, don't sacrifice your standards, be holy. Don't hide away quietly, but proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And we see another counterintuitive, unnatural response in, in today's text. Life is short, so don't use it for yourself. In fact, use it for other people and use it for the glory of God. As you're going to hear, this passage includes three of more than, the more than 50 one another commandments of the New Testament. Uh, and those commandments, as Steve was talking about a little while ago, they uh, form the foundation of this rhythm of grace at Liberty Church that we call one anothering. To be in community with each other as Christians uh, means that we're not ultimately focused on ourselves, but we're focused on those whom God has placed around us. And the one another's in Scripture, in the New Testament specifically, give shape to what it looks like to be a godly and healthy and thriving community of Christians. So I invite you now to listen with open ears and listen specifically for those three one another's uh, as I read to us. This is 1 Peter Chapter 4, and I'll begin in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Living God, help us now to hear your word with open ears so that we may truly understand, and understanding that we may believe, and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor, seeking your glory in everything that we do. And we pray all of this through Jesus Christ. Amen. As you heard there in verse 7, Peter writes that the end of all things is at hand. Now that doesn't mean that Peter was expecting Jesus to return during his lifetime. Uh, Jesus actually told Peter that Peter was going to die a martyr. And so Peter was not expecting actually to live long enough to see the day that Jesus would return and come for the second time. So when Peter here says the end is at hand, what he means is that we are now and, ever, and have been since 2,000 years ago, we are in the last days of God's redemptive history. So after the, the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, after the Father and the Son send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, all the major events in God's plan of salvation, they're now in the rearview mirror. There's no other event or further revelation from God apart from the second coming of Jesus that we are waiting for. 
The stage is now set for Jesus to return. And so for the last 2,000 years, we've been living in what the Bible calls in multiple different places, the last days. The point of that, whenever it's taught and written about in the New Testament, the point is not for us to then pick a date, rent a billboard, and tell everybody, well, the end is at hand, and here's the date we think it's going to happen. The point is, because the stage is now set, because Jesus' return is imminent, we need to use our time, we need to use the short lives we have with purpose, with urgency. And Peter uses the next couple verses to, to flesh out what that looks like. So we can summarize it with, with two words. The imminence of Jesus' return should lead us to, number one, selflessness, and number two, stewardship. Selflessness and stewardship. So first, selflessness. Whenever we do realize that the time is short and precious, it reveals what we really value. It, it reveals what we really think satisfies. And for any people who have never found that satisfaction in Jesus, that might be things that bring a real intense dopamine hit, that bring a real immediate sense of, of joy or happiness for at least a few moments. And so just a few verses earlier that we didn't read, Peter actually lists a number of examples sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The thought being, and we we probably have thought those things ourselves at one point or another in our lives, or know people who think this way, the thought being that if we're nearing the end, if our lives are short, well, let's have some fun. And And this is often how people apart from God would define fun. In contrast, for people who have been transformed by Jesus and who have really found their satisfaction in him, Peter says, therefore, because the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled and be sober-minded. In other words, life is short, time is short, double down on holiness. Double down on clear thinking. Double down, he goes on to say, on prayer. Keep communing with God, not running from God. Not trying to create a life of satisfaction for yourself. Commune with God, don't run from him. In other words, this life that we are living is preparing us for the next. And this one is short, but the next one is eternal. And the way that we live our lives here should be lining up increasingly with the way that perfected, fully sanctified life will look forever in the kingdom of God. That's much easier said than done. It's much easier said than done because if we're honest, sin is still appealing to us at times. Is it not? It's appealing to me at times. Moreover, when we are confronted with the brevity of life, it's so much easier to to start becoming consumed with ourselves rather than to start really thinking about other people, rather than to be selfless. And so actually examples of selflessness when someone has a very short period of time, they, they are really powerful examples because they're so rare, because they're so counterintuitive. Many of you are probably familiar with an organization called the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Is familiar with, with the Make-A-Wish Foundation? Uh, it grants wishes to children who have life-threatening conditions. Uh, and most kids, when, when their wish, they find out their wish is going to be granted, uh, they choose something like a trip to Disney World Uh, or meeting their favorite athlete and their favorite celebrity. It's completely understandable that those are the kinds of things that the kids would would pick in that moment. And no one, especially me, faults them for that. 
It's actually an incredible um, joy to see the joy that they experience when they are granted a wish and they get what they've asked for. But in 2014, uh, there was a four-year-old named Dominic Kerr. And Dominic Kerr actually made a different choice than the common one. Uh, After being diagnosed with a rare form of cancer, he found out that the Make-A-Wish Foundation was going to grant his wish. And Dominic uh, wished for a shopping spree. He asked for a shopping spree, but not for himself. Uh, He ended up buying out most of the local Toys R Us uh, and some of the Walmart, local Walmart as well. And then he took all of those gifts to the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, where he himself was a patient, and he gave away every single one of the gifts that he bought, at, he bought from the toy store to the other kids that were patients there. I read that story this week, and I just wept. I've, I'm sure I looked like an idiot, like staring out over 15, just like tears filling my eyes in this story. But I wept when I read that story because it's a beautiful story, number one, but also it's a mirror. And God help me, I'm selfish. And, and a story like that, shows me how selfish I am. I, I'm a grown man that's been walking with Jesus for at least a decent period of time in my life. I can't trust, I don't think I can trust myself to make that selfless of a decision that Dominic Kerr made as a four-year-old. So, so in some ways, I hope I'm more like that four-year-old when I finally grow up, when I finally become more mature. And that's what it looks like. Those examples are so powerful because that's what it looks like to respond to the brevity of life with selflessness. And in this text, Peter is saying, the end of all things is at hand. Verse 8, so above all, be selfless. And specifically, that's where he says these three one another's that define at least some of what selflessness looks like. Love one another, show hospitality to one another, and serve one another. So let's just really briefly touch on, on each of those. Peter says, love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love is actually the most often repeated of the one another's. It shows up a handful of times in the New Testament. Well, here, it's a love specifically that covers a multitude of sins. So if we're going to be in real relationships with other people, they're going to sin against us and we're going to sin against them. It's going to happen if we're in a real relationship with someone for more than five minutes. And so if we're going to stay in real relationships with people, Those sins have to be dealt with. They have to be dealt with. In some cases, that means overlooking offenses, which is almost unheard of in this cultural moment. It's almost unheard of. It's probably worth saying because it feels so revolutionary in this place and time. You don't actually have to get offended about everything. You don't have to. You don't have to point out every shortcoming you see in another person as soon as you see it. We don't have to view every word or every action that someone else does with suspicion. If we're pursuing love for one another, we're going to overlook a lot of things. We're going to overlook a lot of small offenses that play out in our lives. Now, in other cases, sins and offenses can't be overlooked. They're they're too big. They're too painful. And love, in that instance, would still mean doing something to cover the sin, but it would mean to pursue forgiveness and it would mean to pursue, if possible, peace and reconciliation. And I don't say that lightly as a a pastor, as an elder that gets called into these situations. Some sins are massive and are really hard to forgive and take a long time to forgive. 
But through the impossible, the, the, the really hard work of, for, of confrontation and pursuing forgiveness, love for other people is willing to, to pay the cost to cover that sin. It mirrors, even as Steve was saying a little while ago, it mirrors God's love for us by bearing the cost. Peter then says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So welcome people into your home. Welcome people to your table. Welcome people, most importantly, into your life. Hospitality was actually valued by both uh, Greco-Roman society in the first century and Jewish culture in the first century. Those circles both valued hospitality. But it would have been a radical display of unity to bring those circles together. It would have been a radical display of unity to cross those ethnic and racial and cultural lines for Jews to eat with Gentiles or non-Jewish people and vice versa. But among the people of God, we, we welcome one another into our lives with tangible displays of hospitality. There was a great example of this actually playing out among us this weekend. If you drove in this morning for coffee hour or at the start of the service and you saw a giant First Baptist Church of Dexter, Maine van in the parking lot. Anybody see that? There was a youth group from Maine that some mutual friends connected us with a month or so ago. They were down doing a service project, a mission trip in the city of Harrisburg this week. And for the last couple nights, they actually got to stay and hang out with the Malat family. They all crashed, the five students and two chaperones crashed at the Malat's house. That's a great example of showing hospitality. We didn't know these people from Adam when they emailed, when they emailed a month or so ago. And actually, even, even more encouraging, when we put the ask out there about a month ago to see if anyone could open their home to host these folks, there's a, a group of people that have said, yeah, I'm up for, for hearing about opportunities like that when they come. Something like nine different individuals or families responded in the first like 48 hours. So it was really encouraging to me as a pastor to see just how fast so many people were willing to show hospitality. I also love here that Peter says, do this without grumbling, because it just shows that Peter knows human nature. He understands how hard it is to be selfless and to show hospitality like that. And it's encouraging to me, because it makes me think maybe Peter's a little bit like me. He probably had some, some long days, and days filled with a lot of hard conversations and and really, then, and then about like 5.30 rolls around and realized, oh no, we invited people over for dinner tonight. We have more, more relationships, more hospitality to do. And Peter was probably a guy who rather would have just, you know, come home and done some Netflix. Kids, you know, you know Peter, um, Peter was into Netflix, right? He, he would take his, he would, the flicks of the wrist that would cast the, the net out for fish. Your, your booze encouraged me, so, so keep them coming. Keep them coming. It, it's Family Worship Sunday, so I thought I was entitled to one, one dad joke for that, one dad joke. All that to say, he just do hospitality, show hospitality without grumbling. Peter knows we need to learn this as well. Hospitality doesn't just fit into the margins of our life. Uh, we, have to, we have to actually make space for it and prioritize it. If we try to fit it into the margins, we'll always be grumbling when we show hospitality. And then the third one another here in this passage, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And we looked at this last week. Service actually is its own rhythm of grace. Uh, we, we put ourselves forward in the low places. And we do that, we looked at this more last week, we do that outside the church. We do that with people in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools who don't know Jesus. We serve them. But we also make sure that fellow Christians are served too. 
That's why in Galatians chapter 6, the apostle Paul writes, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the household of faith. If we neglect the people that we're in community with, it actually undermines our witness. It actually cheapens our testimony about what it means to actually become part of this family, to become part of the household of God. Serving one another then, as Peter continues, also requires us being a steward of God's grace. So let's talk about now the second thing that the imminence of Jesus' return should lead us to, and that is stewardship. Stewardship. Actually, if you were with us like four years ago when we rolled out the Rhythms of Grace, the original title of this Rhythm of Grace was One Anothering Through Spiritual Gifts. And that was just a mouthful. So after about a minute, we decided, let's, let's just start referring to it now as One Anothering. But the reason for that original title is because one anothering has a lot to do with spiritual gifts. We receive, as Peter says here, we receive gifts from God, and then we use them as stewards of his varied grace. So this is the quick summary, uh, and you can talk a lot more about this, but this is the quick summary of Peter's teaching on spiritual gifts. You have them, they're different from other people's, and they're not for you. You have them, they're not, they're not, they're not the same as other people's, and they're, they're not for you. So first, you have them. No one is without a gift from the Holy Spirit. And some gifts appear to be more valued in the sight of people, but they're not more valued in the sight of God. Every person with each of his or her gifts is important and is necessary. So it's not a question of if you have spiritual gifts. It's which one or which ones do you have. Second, your gifts are different. They're not the same as other people's gifts. As Peter says here, this is God's varied grace. And so God gives these kinds of gifts as he apportions them. Peter here mentions these two general categories of speaking gifts and serving gifts. And if you want to do a deeper dive, places like Romans chapter 12 or 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 give um, much more specific and fleshed out lists of some of the spiritual gifts. But none of us should seek to be exactly like any other of us. God's grace really is varied. It it enables and empowers various gifts that are intended to work together, that are intended to complement one another. If we all had the same exact gifts, it would be really hard to serve one another. If everyone was a teacher and wanted to use their teaching gift to serve, well, would anyone actually sit in and be taught? Just be a lot of teachers and no one learning. If everyone had the gift of hospitality and everyone was inviting other people to their table, would anyone actually go to someone else's table? So you have gifts, they're different from other people's, and then third, these gifts are not for you. They're not for you. Peter actually lists two beneficiaries of the gifts that we receive from God. One is God himself, and the other one is other people. So verse 11, he writes that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. These gifts are ultimately for the honor of God, for the praise of God so that God would be seen as the great giver of grace that he is. That's what these gifts are for. But they're also, as Peter is writing, for other people. We are to use these gifts to serve one another, to show hospitality to one another, to love one another. Notice what's missing from this. You, me, I, we are missing from this. Your gifts are not for you. My gifts are not for me which in our misdirected passions, in our corrupted desires, that's exactly what we're most prone to make our spiritual gifts about. And that's even more the case when we realize 
that we have short lives. Our default is to focus on ourselves, even in something as overtly God-enabled as spiritual gifts. We turn what God gives us into a means of blessing ourselves when it's really meant for others. But the whole point of spiritual gifts is that they've been given by another and for others. We are recipients and we are stewards. That's the word Peter uses here. So think of it a little bit like a financial professional. If a wealthy person decides to open a a trust fund and enlist the services of a financial professional, does the financial professional ever own that money? Do they ever own that money? Of course not. Something that they don't own has been given to them in order to do something with it. And it's an incredible responsibility. It's a significant and and a worthwhile endeavor, but the money actually never changes ownership. So for a created, redeemed human being to use what's been given primarily for our own benefit, to take the gifts that God gives and use it primarily for me, would be like a financial professional using a client's money like it was their own. Which sounded like a great idea to like Bernie Madoff some years ago until a 150-year jail sentence was handed down to him. But no one encounters the kingdom of God. No one encounters the inexhaustible grace of God and walks away thinking, you know what? I want to be the Bernie Madoff of spiritual gifts. I want to take them all. I want to use them for myself. We are stewards of what we've received. And it is an incredible responsibility. It imparts immense significance, immense worth to our lives, to our pursuits. But Peter is saying, just remember, we are not the focal point of it. The end of all things is at hand. Jesus' return is imminent. Life is short, so think of yourself less. And use the gifts that you've received because you have received them to love one another, to show hospitality to one another, to serve one another, so that in everything, in all of our stewardship, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Because you see, church, at the end of the day, that's the whole point. Our stewardship points to the stewardship of Jesus. Our stewardship glorifies his stewardship. Jesus stewarded his earthly life, 33 years, short life, if ever there was one, and really only three of those years for public ministry. He stewarded his earthly life so that we might have new life. He stewarded his life for the life of the world. And what are the 50 plus one another's of the New Testament if not evidences of how Jesus has treated us? Love one another. Well, greater love, John 15, greater love has no one than this than he laid down his life for his friends. So whatever multitude of sins our love for one another might cover, Jesus' love covered the multitude of sins, covered all the sins for any and all who would come to him. Jesus has loved you. Show hospitality to one another. Jesus is the one who's welcomed us. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We sometimes sing this line, once his enemies, we've now been seated at his table. We've been brought into the family of God. Jesus has shown hospitality to us. And serve one another. Jesus, as we looked at last week in Mark 10, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has served us. See, the the one another's are not random commands to follow. They are examples of the way that Jesus has treated you and me. We pursue the one another's in community with each other because it's the way that we have been treated by Jesus. 
And so practically, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you don't already have a copy of the one another's, pick one of those up today when you leave. There's some hard copies at the welcome desk. You can grab one of those on your way out. We also have a digital copy. There's a PDF on our website on the Rhythms of Grace page. You can download it there. And sit with that list this week. And maybe even just ask as you begin. Ask, pray, and ask God to to guide you to maybe one or two that you would really like to see yourself grow in. But before you make plans and start to implement plans for how you're going to do that thing better. First, reflect on how Jesus Christ, to an infinitely greater degree, has done that thing for you. Be overwhelmed and be awed by how Jesus has pursued the one another's for you. Because that's how, then and only then, that's how our pursuit of one anothering will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. So in line with what Peter wrote so many years ago, May Jesus come soon. May he come soon. And when he comes, may he find among us selfless stewards who are treating one another the way that he has treated us. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you, Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ. We praise you, Jesus, for the way that you have loved us and shown hospitality to us and served us and all of the other one another's that you call us to pursue is only a dim reflection, a whisper of the way you've treated us. So I pray you'd help us to see that this morning. I pray we would come to this table with a renewed sense of awe and joy for the way you've treated us, for the salvation you hold out to us because you have loved us and served us. Would we come recognizing how desperately we need that? Would we come rejoicing because you have offered it to us, you've accomplished it for us? We pray that you would help us increasingly to live lives together in community that mirror, that reflect the way you've treated us so that in all of it, we might bring glory to you. Let me pray this all, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.